The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. Welcome, guys. Uh, welcome nice. to our third Coffee and Compatibility Live. I know. Awesome to be here at the 49th Annual Ashi meeting. <laughs> um, we're so close. <laughs> Does anybody, is anybody else tired? <sighs> Get, I hope you got your coffee. They had the, the ladies pre-planned beautifully. We got your coffee out there. Please partake. It's been quite a year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I can't believe they keep asking us to come back and do this. How did... Don't say it like that, I'm running Kim Taskin. I know, they're right there, they're listening. Yeah, it's, we've had quite a year, right? We had a couple of new, introduced a new segment, right? The T. The T. The T. Do you have a, no, I can't do that. I can just do that. It doesn't sound right. Let's try that again. We had a new segment called The T. Was there one that you liked particularly? Oh, so I gotta say, like, I like the spicy ones. I like oh, the yeah. spicy. And um, there was one in particular that when we saw the question, we knew we had to do it. But we had to, like, talk about how to make the answer a little bit diplomatic. There, there was, honestly, there was a question um, from a listener um, about their director really holding the lab back and, and not um, helping the techs uh, evolve. Well, just not helping the techs. That, that, was, that was a tough one. But, but you know what, we, we love that. So continue to submit yeah. all questions. We love all of them, even the spicy ones, maybe especially the spicy ones. Um, but that, that was a tough one. It's hard to hear people in that situation. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is, especially because I know how much we both care about Absolutely. Staff, lab, trainees. You know it, because I think oh. there are a couple of people, there are a couple of my people in the audience this morning. I saw Janet. Where's Jan? Oh, oh, there they are. Okay, yeah, Janet. Uh, why don't you? Why don't you stand up? Take take a twirl. Yeah, uh, Janet Franco <laughs> and Julie Cavazos and my labs manager. I think nice. back there, Laura McNash. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yes, we care about our folks deeply. Their family. Yeah, I think we did. We have something else this There's year. There's something missing. Yeah, what else did we do? What was that? Oh, we added a host. That's it. Right. That's it. Yeah. The duo became a trio. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the technologist community is the foundation of what we oh, do. Yeah. So um, we really we really are complete now that we have a host. And he is here. Uh, and so we would like to uh, introduce, for the first time at a Coffee Incompatibility Live, our co-host, Mr. Jeremy Sherrill. All right. Where are we going, man? Good job. Are you We're going to do this. <laughs> there he is, live and in living color. Jeremy, what have you thought about your first year on the show? It's been a lot of fun, honestly. Uh, more fun than I anticipated. I thought we'd be kind of talking science all the time, and it Stop. turns out we just goof around most of the time. So. Shoot, man, come on. We are being, it's Don't live. give away all the behind the scenes. Yeah, we can't let anyone else know how much fun we have, because then they would take away the CE credits for listening uh, to the probably show. Probably true. So. Where's Melissa? 
Yeah, yeah. it's a dicey maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Melissa, you didn't hear that. <laughs> so guys, we've had a really great year as a society, as a community of practice. Yeah. Um, there have been some high highs, there have been some tough things for, our, um, for members of our community, and there have been some controversial things. So in years past, we've done you know, little, little interview segments um, with people in the field that are moving into new positions of leadership. And we wanted to do something a little bit different this year. We're in San Antonio. We wanted to turn up the heat, like increase the spice level a little bit. So I don't know if you remember um, a little while ago when it was proposed that maybe our community should, type, should start double typing deceased donors before allocation. Um, and that policy proposal um, went to public comment and did not pass, um, but people have a lot of feelings about it. And so we wanted to bring two folks that we knew would definitely have expertise and feelings about it and interview them on today's show. And so we're gonna do that today. And because this is such a potentially polarizing topic, we also really wanna hear from you. So if you um, hear anything during the conversation or have a point or have a question from one of our panelists, we heavily encourage you to come up to one of the mics um, as you will. You don't have to wait till the end, just come up anytime. Yeah. Um, the, the, from my understanding, the first person to come up to the mic gets a, gets a little prize. <laughs> so, um, so we encourage you to participate. Don't all run at once. No, no. So without further ado, um, let's introduce our guests. We're going from two ends of the spectrum here. Um, we have with us your, as of yesterday, president-elect, Dr. Kathy Murphy, who is the director here in town of Southwest Immunodiagnostics. Joining her in the ring. Hey, Kathy. Good to see you. <laughs> it's pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. They told me I couldn't actually do that, but I'm, you can tell I just don't. I oh, just here, ignore. take a seat. Get comfortable. Uh, You're going to need these. <laughs> you definitely are going to need those. Oh, yeah. That's what Not me. Well, you can. But Lace them up. So joining Dr. Murphy on stage is former ASHI president, Wake director of the Wake Forest HLA Lab, Dr. Mike Gutro. Thank you, sir. No hug? Oh, of course you get a hug. <laughs> yeah. Please. Oh. oh. <laughs> Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. Good to see you. <laughs> you have your own set of gloves. Oh, that's right. I'm not responsible for what I'm happens after this here. point. I'm just going to get comfortable with my Ashi blanket here. <laughs> you won that at the Ashi membership booth, did you not? No, did you spend no. the Ashi deal for that? I. Yeah bought this blanket because I am consummately cold and this is consummately snuggly. Oh, you missed an opportunity to spin the Ashi wheel. I'm all about the snuggles. So, for you guys. Dr. Gutro, Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for joining us. Can we call you uh, Mike and Kathy? Please. Okay. Please do. Call me Kathy. <laughs> Done. Yeah, which one is which? If you have nicknames, we can do those too. Yeah. So. If anyone in your lab has a nickname for you, like if they call you Superman or... Oh, you, you definitely don't want to hear what they say. <laughs> now I really do. 
No, what goes on in the board meeting stays in the board meeting. No <laughs> nicknames are coming out now. C Money. I would have guessed C Money for, for Kathy. It's a rapper name. <laughs> so I, I kind of ahead, dig like right in. So we kind of mentioned, so there, there was a proposal. Um, it came out of the OPTN Histo Committee. Um, there, we, we all know that there are discrepancies on occasion um, when donors are typed and that typing is noted in the national system in, in UNET. Um, and sometimes those are typos, sometimes they're not. Um, and this proposal came out and there was a lot of public comment on this proposal. Uh, and and the, measure, the measure did not pass. Um, so I guess to start with, um, can each of you tell us do you think, um, are, well, are, are either of you already doing this? So can, before we do that, can I just give you a little bit of a, a background Please. history about how this came about? Absolutely. So um, on the HISTO committee, we're tasked with reviewing all the discrepancies, right? <clears throat> so we've developed a, a methodology to come up with a spreadsheet to handle, and we categorize them, kind of put them in buckets. and so. We put the um, clerical errors in one bucket, the technical errors in another bucket, and then the interpretation errors in another bucket. So for example, when people would have a DR7 and a DQ9, and they'd call the DR53 instead of reporting the null. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that we did was institute the double t uh, entry so that that would cut down on the clerical errors, right? Yeah. So And that was successful, yeah. It was, yeah. however, there were still all of the other errors that were left. Yeah. So the interpretation errors, the, um, and the uh, donor type, there were a few cases of just wrong typing. The whole typing is wrong, mm -hmm. was put in there. So those, and for the kidney allocation, if we, the other thing that the metric that we tracked was how long was it between the time from the first match run was run and the typing was found to be incorrect. And then the second match run was run with the correct typing. Yep. So that could be anywhere from two hours to 24 hours. So this was delaying implementation. However, during that period of time, as you know, hearts and livers are not allocated based on typing. So they would already be being offered to the center based on the first typing that was put in there. So we all know how we have patients that have, they're highly sensitized. So this became a safety issue for our patients. So the histo committee thought, well, this is another way to do it, to handle it just like ABOs, right? In my lab, this wouldn't have been a, uh, an onerous feat because we were the OPO lab. We'd get two uh, tubes of blood. They're drawn five minutes apart. We do the ABO typings on both of those. We run also two different vendor kits for typing automatically. So we run the CareDX and the uh, One Lambda for these anyway. So what we would have just done was to institute, we're gonna run the CareDX on one and the One Lambda on the other. And so it wouldn't have been any additional time or money for us to be spent. But I understand that's not everybody's policy, nor if you're running two donors at a time, you have a limited equipment, you know, this may be onerous and burdensome for the laboratories that are smaller OPO labs. So I, I get it. I understand it. I understand both sides. But So how does this come to you, Mike? Yeah. Well, I mean, 
everything that Dr. Murphy just said. May I call oh, you Kathy? I totally agree with. And the problem is, is that every laboratory is unique. We have unique circumstances. Kathy's lab is the OPO lab. My laboratory is in an OPO region with three other institutions, and the donor is typed by whichever institution happens to be closest. Now, it is also the fact that we don't have 24-7 staffing. So people come in on call. It's an extra burden. And on top of that, we may end up getting the organ and then have to spend more time doing the crossmatch, or we'll be at the top of the list. So it's just an extra added burden to an already stressful situation and you know, doing it in the middle of the night. And I was of the opinion that if you do the same thing over and over and expect to get a different result, then that's the definition of insanity. So we don't, <laughs> we don't have, we don't use two kits. We're in the process of bringing that on. But there's also, I mean, the vast majority of the errors, and it's been pointed out even in the policy proposal, are clerical errors. UNOS's system for getting that data into DonorNet is, to say the least, cumbersome. You have to type some, you have to click some. It gets very hard, and, and, and a bigger priority should have been made on the APIs needed to have that automatically loaded from your database. Because, like the former director or the um, chief information officer of UNOS, Alex Chuchinsky, removing a chair from the pathway, because every chair is a person sitting there typing on a keyboard. Make, it, make that flow as seamless as possible. That's the vast majority of the errors. Now, we have had some wrong typings, and when we did the root cause analysis, it turned out, well, okay, first off, it's mostly DP. And if you use the one Lambda real-time kit, the DP typings, especially for DP beta, are not true typings, they're epitypes. So it's a very limited sections of DNA that they do to look for the most pronounced differences. And these epitypes are also the same ones that are used for the NMDP's algorithm of DP permissive versus non-permissive. So if you look at that chart, those are the same epitypes that are typed for in the um, former linkage now one lambda kit. But there's another issue that's going on that has really opened my eyes just this week. A lot of OPOs are not requiring deceased donor typings in the middle of the night, and ours is one of them, and they just started this policy a couple of weeks ago. So I can't say that I am as strongly opposed as I might have been in my public comment that I made, which was... Spicy. A little bit. <laughs> It was St. Patrick's Day, maybe a little my Irish came out. But it's, it, it's not, the, the, t wow. the thing that we have to understand is that patient safety is paramount. But patient safety is accomplished by having techs who are not overly burdened while they're doing the testing. I mean, we try to eliminate the phone calls. We try to eliminate... We actually moved off campus because some of our surgeons would like to come sit in the lab while the cross match was being done. <laughs> you know, fun stuff like that. But there's other ways that we could do, you know, uh, instituting double 
checks in the middle of the night. I mean, the labs that I do, we get up in the middle of the night and we review the data and we look at it and say, okay, does it match, you know? Mm -hmm. Is the ABO right? Is the typing right, you know? Yeah. And if it's not, then it's gotta fix it. So there are some safeguards against it that we can do that's not burdensome on the text. It's burdensome to whoever has to get right. up in the middle of the night and review the data, but, sure. you know, that's so, fair enough. So, Kathy, can I ask then, does full inner, would full interfacing change the equation for you, do you think, where if you had your software analysis that imported data directly into your database, that it, imported directly into UNOS, do you think that would change the equation? I, absolutely. You know, we already have an interface that downloads Fusion or whatever software score downloads directly into Histotrack. And if we, and I, it, it's my understanding, and I have talked to Scott Townsend a lot about this, he's probably gone by now, um, about where's my API? You know, what <laughs> time is ticking here, right? So he, they're working on it, but they are behind the eight ball for that. But they, um, once we get that, that's gonna, if you've double checked everything and you've triple checked everything, then it's gonna be able to, then, then we have the last sets of errors where it's just the wrong typing, where the wrong donor is uploaded. And those are the ones that really scare me because there's no way to really fix that problem. But that might also be something that probably OPO labs, because you're working many donors at yeah. one time, and depending on your geographic territory, um, for labs like mine, it's usually one donor, sometimes on the weekends, or if there's a motorcycle rally in town, it might go <laughs> up a little bit. But it, um, it's usually one at a time. So that kind of time pressure, coupled with the fact that they're doing this on call instead of part of their regular shift, but like I was saying, our OPO, I believe the OPO in Memphis, Brett, if you're out there, correct me. And I saw a poster about the OPO in New York doing something similar where they're not, because they're, they're not allocating these organs for 24 to 36 hours. And our OPO has been very good about pre-positioning samples. So if they get consent on a donor, they will courier samples to whichever center is doing, is gonna do the um, typing and the, and they, send them out to the other labs for potential cross-matches. Could you talk to my OPO, please? <laughs> <laughs> I know somebody in your OPO, but... Every OPO. Because we have to do them all in what the middle you? of the night. Yeah. <laughs> it is getting spicy. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. So I think something that, that concerned people about this proposal was that it was very unclear whether or not there was really good root cause data to say that doing this, which will be you know, expensive and, and new for most laboratories, would really actually fix the problem. Yeah. And so I think now there are measures being put forth to start to collect that root cause data so that we can really kind of get at this better. Um, but the other thing that was really surprising was that there was no guidance put forth about how to do this. Two samples, one sample, you just retest it another time? Do you mm -hmm. use two vendors? Do you use different, you know, there's no, no guidance. I, yeah, I think, but I think that their thought process was, we're gonna handle this just like we do ABOs, which there would be two different draws at two different times. And, and like I said, in my OPO, it's five minutes apart, so it's yeah, not I gonna think, delay I think anything. The proposal did say drawn but, at separate times, so. so what, how, how far apart? Well, that's. Right? So like, yep. so the five minutes, has that ever, now do you currently use the two different samples to test your two different methods? 
Uh, no, we do not for our typing. We do for ABOs. Okay, and but not for the. I'm going to talk a little typing. bit later about ABO genotyping because I think that's really important. But mm -hmm. just leave mm -hmm. that in there. Mm -hmm. didn't sure. I? sure. <laughs> hey, I'm all about it, man. Go. So, uh, Mike, what what do you think would be if you if you had to do this? Let's say this this policy passed. What do you think is the most efficient way to really get at the problem if we really have true like sample switch mistypings? Sample switch is not going to be corrected necessarily by this, but it could be caught by two different samples at two different times, but then it has to be sent at two different times by two different people, it has to be labeled. <laughs> How many things labeled. come through not labeled? Tall order. Yeah. Uh, right. Tall order. Um, the details. I mean, I understood the, the whole concept with the ABO, and this even emulates to a little bit of a degree the NMDP's um, uh, requirement that you type two times before marrow is actually allocated to somebody. But there's a, there's a, a, there is dramatic time differences between those. And, and that was no, and, and we had no buy-in or, as far as I know, any comment other than what was put in the public comment from the AOPO, the OPO community. I mean, it was, this, they were probably going to be hit the hardest because of the requirement for the samples, the requirement for the currying, <laughs> getting it there. <laughs> well done. Well done. Thank you. And well, when it comes to ABO and HLA no, typing, you know, and the need, the need to do them both for similar reasons, are, are we kind of comparing apples and oranges? Well, uh, you know, I guess it depends. For kidney transplants, you know, the, uh, you know, ABO, far and away, we know, okay, that's, that's a non sequitur, right? I mean, you, you have to get that right. If you don't get that right. But also one of the reasons that you do it twice is because blood type may get confused with transfusions and other treatments being done to yep. prolong. Another reason for genotyping, but. <laughs> Calm down, Dude, she Kathy. set you up on that one, man. There's a the part, you, the gloves uh, come out. No, but, the, but, but for, I guess in my mind, the only, reason I could see that would justify this is the heart allocation for our highly sensitized patients when they're basing it on the first typing where it hasn't been caught yet and they have antibodies and you put that heart in. You know, so they may do fine, but they may not. You know, it's not like a kidney where the patient can go back on dialysis. So, I mean, I think it's incumbent upon us, you know, and we've heard this throughout the whole meeting, is that we need to do better. No, we need to be better. So that is the key to all of this is, oh, Annette's going to win the prize. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, going to the... So... It doesn't count as a question if you're doing it while we're talking, Annette. <laughs> it counts. Up for questions? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Oh, no, 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 go. Right now? Yeah, no. Yes. <laughs> this is very cash. I'd like the audience to decide whether or not Dr. Jackson's going to get the prize for the first question, because I'm dubious. Yeah, we can take a show of hands if that's... So CMS, oh, one CMS um, lists our testing, our laboratories, as, as high complexity and, um, you know, the severity of our testing, because our testing results in, you know, it can result in patient death, right? I mean, they're wheeling them into the OR. So they want mitigation. They want risk mitigation. So if we type and we get it, we send the wrong kidney to the wrong center in a highly sensitized patient such that they have CDC cross-match level antibodies, so it could be hyperacute. If that center does a cross-match, 
prior to placement, they will identify that typing as incorrect. So the cross-match serves to mitigate the risk of mistyping. So since many centers are going, removing the cross-match step, that is a removal of a safety valve. I know some labs that go directly to the OR with a virtual, even in their highly sensitized patients, they bring their tech in and do a real-time retyping of the donor, therefore mitigating that risk. Um, I think we need data. We, we're, not, we, we're not provided with data. But I would say, what is your response to CMS if we don't want to retype like we do for ABO? And I would say for our highly sensitized patients, the correct typing is as significant as a correct ABO typing. So if we're not going to double type and we're not going to do the physical cross match, how do we explain to CMS that we're mitigating risk for our high complexity, high severity testing? Okay, you always bring it to the worst possible scenario, so I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the idea of doing this typing in the middle of the night with technologists that are already on call is one thing. Having it as part of the workload of a normal shift in the middle of the night is another thing. Making sure the samples are appropriate and not mixed is one other thing. But you're right, risk mitigation is important, but identifying what the risks are is, should have been the first step instead of just saying, do it twice. You're right, you're right. And, and it has to be a, and I'm gonna agree with you. <laughs> I need a fan. Oh my. That, that we do need to identify every step of the way where the process is broken, yeah. right? So we can fix the process before we address, you know, and what, what exactly are the real problems? Yeah. We know what the problems are. We know what the scenarios could be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge. I was, I was just about to ask, so in your experience, uh, to my what knowledge, do you think is the bulk of the issue here? I think that um, it's the potential for uh, patient bad, bad, bad patient outcomes, right? So to my, I was just about to say, to my knowledge, I don't think that there's been any deaths associated with wrong typings, but there have been wrong typings put into patients that have had highly sensitized, that are highly sensitized, that have antibodies to the donor. And they've, you know, plasma them and they've taken care of them, and fortunately none of them has gone on to expire that I know of. But it's those types of scenarios that they want to try and prevent. Maybe this isn't the best way to do it. Maybe there are other mechanisms that we could put into place, like APIs, double checks, um, uh, reducing workload during the middle of the night. But I, I think that it was a, a pressure was put on the committee to say, you know, you have had the same discrepancy rate for the last 10 years. It's not gone away. Yes, it's decreased a little bit when you put in the double entry for the clerical errors, but you still have this rate. And what, you know, and then you, you're left with what is an acceptable rate? Is there, is there yeah, an that's, acceptable rate? I think rate? you're getting at the crux here, right? Is that because they've been given pressure to continually, you know, like, optically make this look better and better, right? And without some of the tools to do that, right? So what is, what do you think, Mike? How do we make it? Well, I mean, we are humans, you know, news alert, and there's always going to be some mistakes made, no matter how perfect the system is. I mean, think about what goes on in ORs. They do sponge counts, they do 
instrument counts, and they still leave sponges and instruments in people. So, I mean, it's not zero. We would love it to be zero. It'll never be zero. One thing also that's, that is of concern to me is the quality of the vendor kit. Doesn't seem to be as good as it used to be, or it's because we have more typings that need to be characterized that the kit can't do. Okay, now so, I'm going to put in another little plug for rapid NGS testing, which you uh, can do Thank you. Yes, um, if somebody had seen our presentation about that, I, I gave one to you, so we're we're good. Let, <laughs> but we um wait before Lewis speaks. That is risk mitigation. If, if you're able to do this in a convenient enough fashion, you can do the NGS within a couple hours. We actually did it, you know, the, the vendor came with their prototype and we were able to get a really good typing within three hours from blood. So it is possible now to do NGS and it's possible to do it well. Does NGS need to be done twice? Do you do the real time in conjunction with the NGS? Does that, that will work? Be our protocol. I mean, that, that sounds more reasonable. That would be our protocol. <clears throat> but, you know, identifying what the problems are, identifying what the possible solutions are, then allows you to make a plan. But just, you know, blurting out, do it twice, that's not a plan. That's, that's a knee jerk reaction. Willy nilly. Lewis? Yeah. So, just to address uh, Annette's point, because we are one of those centers that goes to the OR with oh. virtual only, highly sensitized. So we do do the repeat typings in those cases, but the problem with the proposal was they wanted it straight across the entire system, and that has a significant cost to it. Right. And the number of cases that this represents is very tiny. Point, point so, three <clears throat> percent? What's that? I think it was point, yeah. point three Yeah, it percent? was less than one. It ended up being like literally like two or three cases. You divide that across like almost $15 million to deploy per year across the system. So you're talking about, you know, $4 million, $5 million per case because you're applying it to everybody, whereas the problem really only exists with like a handful of cases, right? So, and I think that's really where, where it fell apart is uh, in addition to, to Mike's points about, you know, the additional burden on the staff. I mean, you made a mention about the fact that some labs are being told what their error rate is. And, but that's not a complete set of data for that. And we got, we're getting queued there. Oh. And, um, but there, there are, there, the, the SRTR component, the data component, just like for, um, you know, organ deaths within a single year, and they get the, you know, the little blob points and they see where they are on the graph. Something similar can be done like that, too, to see where you are. We did do that initially when we, um, there, we identified the top 10% of the of labs that were making the errors, and we sent out individual letters to them and said, hey, you may want to look at your processes. You know, this isn't a punitive thing. It's an educational thing, an observational thing. So here are the data, and may, maybe you want to do something about that. So you said oh, you're going to start collecting data, because we need data. Right. We need data to understand where the where the errors are being made. Um, I, I take a more stringent role. We are humans, we will make mistakes. Our processes should be built that very few get out of our lab, that they should be caught in our lab, but we need data. And so you say we're gonna start collecting that data. That is too long. So why can't we, you know knows laboratories that have had discrepancies. Why can't we go back to those labs 
ask for their root cause analyses because they should have done one if they reported an incorrect typing and start collecting and do, do an analysis. You know, we can de-identify and write the, the common errors that occurred in these laboratories and then we can write a best practices white paper to try to mitigate that. Like we must take action now. We can't collect data for five years. And so, you know, and, and we have to talk maybe centers like Lewis's that go right to the OR with a virtual, maybe when their patients have CDC level antibodies, perhaps, you know, if, if labs can't retype, maybe, and they go to the OR on a, with a virtual. These are all, you know, synopsises where the safety valves are not in place. Perhaps if you have a CDC positive patient, you know, with that level antibody, perhaps you should retype. That's going to be a small number of your wait list. And so I would, I would ask, like, are there certain <coughs> cases in which we could do a little bit of extra work on very few patients and make sure we have no hyper-acute rejections in the OR? And, and I think that's a very valid point. I think that the only problem that you're going to run into is when you're doing virtual cross-matches for import kidneys when you don't have the blood to do it in advance. Yeah. Raj. 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 Oh, thanks. Um, Yes, we, we run now OPO uh, disease donor samples. We have 500 samples in San Francisco Bay Area. We always run uh, dual typing. One sample um, are a real-time PCR from two different vendors. We look at the data in 4,000, uh, around 2,000 samples. We found four out of these 2,000 some samples uh, uh, wrong typing if you use one kit, which is what Kelly was saying, on zero. Zero three percent, but, but that's important, right? you know. So, looking at this, all this um, uh, virtual cross match pulse, as Luis mentioned, so our our kidney goes directly to the OR without any physical cross match, and we have loaded with highly sensitized patients. And moving forward with the geographical distributions, the kidney will be coming anywhere. I think this important critical to have dual typing. So, I mean, Luis mentions it costs $4 million to the health system. Uh, that number, I think, is coming from two different samples. So you send sample one, then another sample comes. That is complicated, but at least we have to have two typing. It helps to reduce the error, and also it helps our technologies for the interpretation. I'm not doing the, inter the interpretation in the middle of the night. If you have two different kits, it's easy to make any call. Uh, so I, I think we, so, so uh, Kathy mentioned, so we, we don't know, there's, there's no death. We don't know actually. No, I, I said to my knowledge, because I don't know that. I yeah, don't. We, don't, we don't capture, the UNOS doesn't capture that. If I, if I do wrong typing, the organ goes into six different people, we, we don't know. There's, there's no way to check it. There's no system. I'm going to insert a uh, shameless plug here. I think Raj published a paper in Human Im Immunology about this very subject uh, a couple years ago. So read your subscription to Human Immunology. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> well, I, I think with that, uh, I think our time is actually up. So Mike and Kathy, thank you so much for, for coming on the show with us. Thank you for having and, uh, us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. You guys are thank great. you all. Thank you yeah, thank you all for your great participation here. We had wonderful questions. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.
And the show's not over, guys. Um, I hear it is my understanding that we have some award winners uh, right. to announce. Yeah, for so I think the lovely Gloria is approaching with said envelopes. I thank you. I thank you so much. This is just like the Grammys. Ooh, it is, but cooler. Ooh. Oh, it's Sir? Whoa, mine says President's Choice. Mm, that does not feel appropriate. Start. Maybe you should start with that one. Does not feel appropriate. The poster award winner for the President's Choice is Kazu Oisagawa. Poster 524, defining novel HLA serologic specificities using a large clinical data of single engine bead assay. And that was an awesome one. Congratulations, Kazu. And winners, if you're in the room, you can go see the ASHI staff after the show to figure out how to collect your prizes. And if you're not in the room, you can email the ASHI staff to find out how to collect your prizes, or they'll find you. Um, so I have the uh, People's Choice Poster Award winner, um, who is Melissa Harnoy for Poster 212, Investigating HLA-DQ Immunogenicity in Lung Transplantation. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Well deserved. Oh, is that her right there? Yes, and I, I, I Even have better. to tell you, since we have a winner sitting right here, um, this took several rounds of votes. It was heavily competitive. Yeah, it was Super that competitive. And you crushed the competition. I have... I have uh, what was called a special shout out, not an award. I'm gonna go ahead and call this Artists of the Year Award. Uh, like we have a special a shout out to the uh, Ashi Technologists Affairs Committee uh, who created a networking path for this year's meeting attendees who are attending the meeting solo or maybe have never attended before and are trying to connect uh, people together. So they used a mobile app this year called the GroupMe app. If you weren't on it, you really missed out and you'll wanna look out for this next year. Uh, but it allowed uh, attendees to arrange for dinners, meetups, attend sessions together, uh, other social events, and post about some of the uh, uh, events that they attended. It was a lot of fun, so you'll want to look out for that. But we had a, a few stellar volunteers that really went above and beyond to put this together. Uh, those would be Cordy Kadika, Lyndon Galt, Walter Herzik, Katie Mellon, Ellie Saunders, Elaine Forrest O'Shields, Philip Fisher and Jessica Gugliuzza. So thank you to all of them. There's nothing better than having new people um, to our meetings and our society feel like family. So thank you guys for helping the society accomplish that. Big feat. Oh, it's so much fun getting together with people you've never met before for dinner. These are our people. <laughs> and as you're walking through a restaurant, you hear people debating HLA topics. There's nothing yeah. better than the annual meeting. Yeah. You're like, that's, that's an HLA person right there. You don't get that at home. No. Yeah, nobody not. in Ann Arbor is casually discussing HLA like at random restaurants. It's really disappointing. Yeah, we should, that should be a strategic plan. To just casually discuss HLA in social contexts? Yeah, make yeah, it. I see no problem with that. Yeah, we need to. We need to or we should talk about more robots. All right. <laughs> Eric, I think I, I think I discovered a show recently that you would love where the robots just fight one another for, Ooh, for three I'm on board. until one of them taps out. I'll show it to you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Send, me the, send me the YouTube link. We are hardcore digressing. Hardcore. <laughs> See, um, this is what happens. 
So you yeah, can I see think, the outtakes. I think that we have time for Q&A, yeah? Yep. So um, this is the part of the live show that we're so lucky because we get Q&A from our listeners yep. to the podcast all the time. Sometimes the, it, it's just heartwarming support, which we always love. We will never not take that. So thank you for that. Yeah. Sometimes it's questions about the show. Sometimes it's ideas for episodes. Um, and sometimes it's really controversial things, like what you hear sometimes on the tee. Um, so this is your shot, live and in person, um, to ask us anything that you want to know about the podcast, um, about our opinions on Ashi processes. Um, and we have the virtual audience also tuned in, um, so they can certainly submit questions. Um, so now's your time. And the Facebook Live. Oh, and Facebook group. Live. Oh, oh, Facebook Live on the social. Yeah, Mandy deserves all the credit. Oh, we have socials. our first brave soul. Oh, yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm going to ask the question I didn't get to ask while our. Even better. Because there. <laughs> they're not up here now, so we'll just yeah. talk. We're just going to wing it. So um, I, I'm a big proponent of always having redundancy in your data just so that you have some measure of check and balance. That being said, um, something that is not being talked about quite as much and maybe is something to think about is the technologies that we have for our typings are getting faster and faster and more and more reliable and the amount of ambiguities we're seeing are less frequent and if we are seeing them, we're usually used to seeing them. It's the same ambiguities that keep coming up. But the OPOs years and years ago were used to us having to spend a fair amount of time to get these typings because we had to rule out ambiguities, do additional typings, and things like that. So the window's gotten smaller, and we're no longer the least common denominator for them getting that donor listed, right? So they have to do ABOs and serologies and infectious disease testing, get the authorization. So the burden on the lab, you know, is there an opportunity to talk to these OPOs and say, hey, we don't need to come in the middle of the night. You, even with our typing, you can't list right away anyway often. Now, there are stat cases and things like that, but is it something that can be pushed off till morning? And this is something that we do in our lab a lot. Uh, we, we've talked to our OPO, and they can move it off to the morning a lot of the time. So my question. It, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I feel I feel two ways about it. I certainly want, you know, to protect um, the time of, of the technologists. And also that's, you know, that's like a job satisfaction issue too, right? Mm -hmm. You gotta have a life. Um, there have actually been some interesting studies out there about the weekend effect and the weekend effect on organ allocation. And you could extend this potentially to the overnight effect as well. It's true that like, you know, in the scheme of things, we're just a part of this picture. But I do also see the side of the entire community trying to come together and place more marginal organs and increase utility rates. And I certainly also don't want to be even a couple minutes of that not progressing forward in a productive way for our community and for the donors and the donor families. I think, too, you have to communicate really well with your OPO to be able to distinguish between the cases that you do need to come into the middle of the night for and have uh, a pretty good working relationship uh, to, to kind of constantly evaluate how good of a job you're doing at distinguishing between those stat cases and the routine, routine cases. Yeah, that, it's that a, can it's wait a conversation, and, and that's something that we do have with our OPO. We're very lucky yeah. with that and fortunate that they communicate with us, hey, this one can wait or this one can't. 
um, and when they need it now, they tell us. And yeah. but the number of times that that happened is significantly less than hey, we can wait. So it's just something to maybe increase the communication on that end of things as well. If we move to a place where we have to do too. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, hey Walt. Walt. Hey. Walt. Um, of course, you know, being an OPO lab, which full service do everything. We have done a study, we do the staff study, so we have limited to the staff when they have to come in on call in the middle of the night. It is only for stats, and we, we keep track of that with our clinical team and have been doing that for, what, two years now, Jeremy? Um, yeah. Yeah, so we, we look at that and we make sure that they are telling us what really is stat. And um, like Philip said, you just have to communicate, but you also have to know, you know, and especially as Kelly said, they're going after marginal donors now, so we do have the rapid DCDs and we have all of that. So um, because of the, the tier that's coming into play with everything, so yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they're not gonna bat a thousand. Uh, sometimes they're gonna call things stat where it turns out maybe they could have waited and we've gotta be yeah on board enough with the, the, the mission to accept that there are gonna be some cases. Exactly. Where we come in and it turns out, it turns out uh, maybe it could have waited. So we wanna play on that side of the, uh, uh, I, I think the, uh, uh, the risk factor, we wanna be a little more conservative. Mr. President. Mr. President Hughes. So, so just so the message is clear, uh, this proposal failed, not because it was specifically addressing the handful of cases it failed because it was, it aimed to implement it system-wide and it had a huge cost associated with it, right? So none of us were against additional measures for those handful of high-risk scenarios, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and if that proposal had changed to say the centers that are going to do this need to do an additional stat typing, sure. that probably would have gone through, right? But it was implemented as a system-wide thing. So the numbers just don't add up. And our society is made of scientists, so it's not going to work. And along that point, it is worth pointing out that Ashi did submit a lovely, very thoughtful, um, very detailed um, public comment um, about, about the proposal. Um, so if you're curious, that is definitely worth a read. I think our guests uh, added some very nice comments during that public comment period as well, which are fun to read. <laughs> I just wanted to just put something out there as a hospital-based lab. We also have the situation of two centers in one city. We actually split the month with the OPO as the contract lab. Um, one of the issues that we have is that we get a lot of typings from our OPO. Um, we have discussed with them already stat versus non-stat donors. It's been really successful. Um, and we, like Jeremy said, if they say it's stat, we just do it. We don't discuss it. Um, we do physical cross matches prospectively and concurrently for kidneys. And I've had every scenario. I have had the sample come in for an import donor and it was actually the wrong donor. We did the typing, complete mismatch. Um, we've had, we also have a big situation where 
we've got really good typing systems. I feel like the technology is there. We've done real-time typings where it calls something. We've backed it up with SSP, and it is correct. Like, we've got the, the good methods. One of the problems that we have in our lab is that we often type donors that don't even have UNOS ID assignments yet. So what happens is you have your tech doing a typing. It, they send electronic forms to the supervisors on call, and it could be two days before that gets entered into UNET just in the middle of the night, on a weekend, and it's really dangerous with this manual process. And I just, I don't know, does anyone else have that situation? Do you have advice for, you know, how do you keep that integrity going when you have a UNOS ID unassigned, you're going by your OPO ID, and you're doing all this transcription, and we will often have we could have up to half a dozen donors in that status, and it's really hard to uh, keep it cool. Yeah. And our errors have always been typos. Hmm. With the double entry, um, they've been reviewed, they're in our LIS, but we're missing that piece, that API, and I just, I, I, it sounds like we all have support for that, but I don't know, does there anything yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think you're right. I think a lot of us are in the same, like we all wish that there was some magic API button, right? And that, that I, I'm optimistic that what Dr. Murphy said is gonna, like the collective push will make this a reality. I think it's a tough position. If you have multiple UNOS ID unassigned, you've worked them up sort of processes. I mean, immediately my, my two cents would be trying to keep as many bits of the information as separate from each other as is, is, is feasible. Like, not just like physically, right, like a printout located elsewhere, but like digitally separated as much as possible. So you're forced to, to think about where donor X is or donor Z is, right, um, as much as you can, because the more you sort of have to focus your energy to find it or look at it, I think the less likely you are to make the accidental, like, oh, I grabbed this sheet of paper sort of thing, um, uh, is sort of my two cents. I wonder if perhaps you've already done this. You know, it, it sounds like maybe the, the timing of when samples are arriving in the lab versus when they're, they're the allocation process is really starting up, it sounds like they're, they're not necessarily in line every time. So I wonder if it would be worth trying to collect some data to, to look at what time is the typing reported versus what time is the match run run or what time is the UNOS ID created. And, and taking that uh, to, the, to the OPO to say, look, we, we need to wait until, we need to wait until, to do this step until the appropriate time. Um, and, and when that's presented along with the error rate, um, I think the risk versus benefit ratio would probably line up to, to delay some of those typings occasionally. That's actually a great idea. And I, I don't know if you guys have met Mitch, our bioinformatics person. I actually have him running some data to say, how many core IDs do we do that actually don't go anywhere? And how many UNOS IDs that actually don't get transplanted? So thank you very much for that input. And I have to put a little Pittsburgh thing in there. Guys, love the show. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Hashtag, she's got a bioinformatics person? I know, I was just about Kelly. to ask the audience, how many of y'all have a bioinformatics like, what is person this? in your like, lab? 
like in your lab that is dedicated to you? Just her. Nope. I see um, a few I, hands. Okay. Wow. Gee. I run uh, uh, a freestanding lab that supports the academic transplant program. So I, my job is to balance that uh, budget. Uh, so we, I always look at what is the threat. Um, so this is what I think the threat is. It's, it's a good threat, good threat for the patient care. It can improve the location. Uh, so this is a good threat, but I, I feel it's a threat. So the technology is there, you know, so this the, the nanopore technology is a very small piece of equipment, uh, and it, it gives the powerful typing, you know, highest resolution typing. Um, this is what I envision. It can be the typing may be done uh, at the bedside. <clears throat> Owner is identified, the hospital system, whoever it is, uh, uh, do the typing then that can, uh, the data can go to the UNOS computer for organ allocation. I'm just thinking, but you know, so, uh, but that's the threat, I feel it. Yeah, you're, you're pretty spot on. I mean, I'll be honest and say we had an exact conversation with the nanopore people here at this meeting about that exact topic. So we are actively, we and others are working on that exact thing. So thank you for saying it, because then I got to say that we're all gonna do this. <laughs> Please. Yes, a little QAS oh. <clears throat> committee shout out. One of the things that uh, we are actively talking about is the streamlining the data that is from different companies. Um, we all want an API and we all want it simplified. And we're putting it on the OPOs and the other company, I mean, the other hospitals. Um, so yes, this is something that we should definitely be actively working on. Oh, so my CNC EP, that's the Coffee and Compatibility Executive Producer, who has all the powers, telling us to wrap. Mr. Mr. Springer, close the show. Well, thank you. I was looking around whether Lauren was here, but he's not, so I think I should ventilate his opinion also on behalf of him. A lot of work has been done within the Eurotransplant community lately to digitalize the communication of typings, and a lot of work has already been done by many of the vendors that produce the kits. So uh, take advantage of the data standards that are already available. Uh, talk with Sebastian Haidt and Eurotransplant how they did that. It's not that difficult. We manage with different countries, so you as one country should be able to do so. Thank you. You would think so. Audience, thank you so much for thank joining you all Eric very, very and much. Jeremy and Coming, myself for Coffee and Compatibility Live. We'll see you in the coming months.